Welcome back to another episode of the e-commerce gold podcast, Ecom Gold. Thanks for tuning in. As always, we're here every single week speaking to founders and operators of e-commerce brands and consumer brands about their journey, their story, and just trying to extract any little key pieces of magic or moments or learnings that we can then take into our own businesses and our own journey and hopefully use to great effect. And this week, we have an incredible guest. It's one of my favorite conversations that I've had. He has such great energy. Ivory Ella, do you remember it? Ivory Ella? It was a brand that I think was one of the fastest growing brands, if not the second fastest growing brand in the States at the time. And they were driven by purpose, but not necessarily in the way that you might be used to, i.e. Um, purpose first and then build a business around it. These guys kind of merged the entrepreneurship life with the charitable and purpose-driven life and created a really, really good fast growth brand in college. They made a ton of mistakes from then on, uh, learned from them, some of them, and uh, and ended up in a good place. So <clears throat> this is the story of Ivory Ella, the t-shirts that thousands of people waited almost a third of a year to get their hands on. This show is brought to you by Sendlane, the email, SMS, and reviews tool that everyone is moving over to in e-commerce that I know for good reason. They're much more cost-effective than Klaviyo. They have a much more modern platform, in my personal opinion. And deliverability, all of the important things when it comes to email is there. The team is incredible. Go check them out uh, on their website, Sendlane, uh, is what you'll need to Google. And Rewind, the app that every Shopify should have installed without question, It will back up your store, your data, your products, your orders, everything daily. If you need to restore something, an app might overwrite something you can't get back or a member of staff might accidentally delete something. Who knows what could happen? But let me tell you, it will happen and you will be happy to have Rewind on your store when it does. They also offer a staging site environment as well for people that are still running tests right on their live site. I can't believe that that still happens today, but if it does and it is you, then go and check them out. Rewind app or uh, check them out in the Shopify app store. Okay, it's over to John for today's episode of Ecom Cold. Hope you enjoy. It is my pleasure to welcome John from Ivory Ella to the Ecom Gold podcast. How are you doing today, sir? Good, man. How are you? Yeah, very good. Very good. And as always with these episodes, if you could just give listeners a quick overview as to what makes you John personally and professionally? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is John Allen. I'm 30 years old. Um, I've been in e-com and really the DTC world for about 10 years now. Um, probably most known for um, 2014, launched my brand Ivory Ella, which um, you know we went from zero to 14 million in our first six months, um, considered one of the fastest growing apparel brands ever. And so um, started that run a bunch of other brands now. I, uh, I no longer own Ivriel. I've since sold it, but done a few other e-com brands. I own a couple more myself now. And so, um, you know, it's just w- what I love. I've been in e-com ever since I was in college. Um, just been in the social media space, you know, primarily starting on Twitter and, you know, now kind of diving into more of the logistics side. But um, again, love, uh, love everything e-com. So love the podcast and uh, happy to be able to talk about it. Yeah, one of the OGs, ecom OGs, like one of the true yeah. social media captivated audience into e-commerce brand. What about what about your personal life? Like, I know you're into your football. Um, like, what what makes you tick in your personal life? Yeah, um, I mean, again, yeah, love football, just basketball, sports in general. I think I'm a competitive person in nature. So, um, really, anything where there's a goal or willing to win you know it doesn't matter if it's monopoly or sporting events something like that you know i, I love to compete in all aspects um it's probably why i love business and running my own business so much so um you know golf here or there things like that but i mean for me right now the focus is just building um working on my business and you know doing everything i can i recently got married so um you know that that was cool um was great but now um you know back to the grind back working um just every day building so I know there's a big e-commerce scene out of New York. Is that where you're primarily based if anyone wants to get at you? So I live in North Carolina now. Um, oh, right. I was, yeah, so I was, uh, I was in New York. I've, uh, I've lived in eight states over the last 11 years. So um, I move a lot. 
really wherever there's business or new opportunity. Um, I love seeing new areas. So I primarily live in North Carolina now in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Um, and I own a warehouse that's based out of South Carolina. So down South for the time being, um, been here for about two years now, love the South. Um, but still get back to New York, originally from Philly. So, um, up North quite a bit. Nice, nice. So I wanted to do the episode primarily focused around Ivory Yellow because I think that's what the audience is going to most recognize you for in terms of um, just generally, you know, what you did there. But can you give us the backstory of Ivory Yellow for anyone that doesn't understand what the business did, the, the purpose behind it? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Ivory Yellow was an online apparel brand, um, really imagined vineyard vines, but instead of the whale, it was an elephant. Um, and I think between us and Tom's, we really kind of made the huge give back component, um, a huge piece of not only e-commerce, but just business in general. And so we donated 10% of our profits to, um, a nonprofit organization called Save the Elephants based out of Samburu, Kenya. Um, and I believe year life to date, we've donated just over two, close to two and a half million dollars. Wow. How many elephants, what does that, I mean, what does that equate to in terms of like helping elephants? So, I mean, there, there's a ton of different things it goes into um, for elephant conservation. I believe, I think it's like Leo and then us is the biggest donators ever from it. But we do everything, um, you know, just kind of a, a quick story when we actually got to go visit uh, Save the Elephants in Samburu, Kenya one year. They took us to a school where they actually used our money to build a fence around the local school um, up until then. uh middle school, high school kind of girls weren't able to go to school because of dangers of kidnapping um, animals, just other dangers out there. So they used 10 grand of our money to build a fence around this school. Um, so primary females could go to school, which again, nothing really to do with elephants was more community based, but it was through Save the Elephants. So you know, one of the things we love so much about our partnership with Save the Elephants and what we tried to do with Ipriella was you know, obviously we made a huge impact towards elephants, but we try to um, give back to more to the general community. I mean, we've did, you know, close to half a million dollars to breast cancer research, the American Heart Foundation. So we truly, you know, wanted to just make a difference. And so we found quickly that by being able to build a brand, reinvest in that brand and grow, we were actually to be able to do more and make a difference more because, you know, we could make more money by just growing this business. And so, you know, our nonprofit partners were super behind us. They loved that we were for profit so we could grow the business. You know, I think a lot of times it gets kind of a bad rep, you know, the for profit, but we, we didn't want to be a charity. And honestly, our um, nonprofit partners didn't want us to be either way because we were able to reinvest in the business, grow the business, and therefore make a much bigger impact. So, to your original question, you know, what's the impact we made on elephants? I don't have like a number. You know, we did, I don't know how many X number of elephants we've saved, um, but I know we, we, we've done a ton for elephant conservation. Um, we've gone a long way in elephant conservation from where we were. And when we started in 2014, you know, uh, one of the reasons we started, I can go deeper into it, but at 2014 was this crazy time, you know, everything came out with the Ringley brothers and the circuses, what they were doing with elephants. There was just a major drought in Africa as well. Um, and so elephant population numbers were one of the worst they've ever been. And so, you know, we've come such a long way, you know, since 2014, um, in the 10 years that we've been doing it and donating it. So we've made a huge impact. I know that, I mean, we like to say we let save the elephants do the talking on that stuff. You know, um, I'm not going to sit up here and say I'm a huge conservation expert or anything like that. You know, we kind of write them a blank check. Um, every year we get their financials so we get to make sure that money was put to the appropriate place. Um, but we're super happy with the difference they've made. And, uh, again, it's really them out there making that work. You know, we're just out here selling t-shirts, you know, giving them the money to be able to go do it. Probably the right way around. Usually yeah. to make the money and let them deal with where it goes and how it's getting. Yeah, it was, well, it was funny the first time we did that, right. Um, we called them up and we're like, Hey, you know, we want to give you guys money. And they were like, you know, we just called them on the phone right at this point. I'm still in college. And they're like, uh, yeah, we don't really like do sponsorships and we're like, well, if we write you a check. Will you guys take it? They're like, I mean, yeah, we take donations. So, you know, our first, after our first weekend, we made a, we raised about $50,000 for them. Right. And so we, we call them up and we're like, Hey, where do we send this check? And they're like, wait, what's going on? You're like, no stipulations, no nothing. And we're like, no, like here's 50 grand. Like, please use it to like help save the elephants. 
Um, and ever since then, we've had an amazing relationship with them. Um, again, they, they show, yeah, they show us where all the money goes and it's great, but like, you know, compared to some of their other partners where it's like, it's gotta be used for this or this. Um, I think the flexibility they get from us and just belief in us that, you know, they're the experts, not us is, um, been a real relief to them. And I, I think been a real help for them to be able to kind of grow and, um, make a bigger difference. So that's what we're really passionate about, really happy about and excited to, you know, kind of be able to do. That's awesome. And what, what lit the fire under you to get behind a purpose in general? Yeah. So, um, just very openly speaking, right. We didn't go into this being like, we got to go save the elephants. Um, we had a couple other businesses and we had saw the popularity of elephants. And so we had, um, seen this online social move where, I mean, anytime you posted something with an elephant or a baby elephant, it got four times the engagement. Um, you know, um, and so we saw that. And so we started to build the brand around it, um, around elephants. And then probably like a week before launch, one of my good buddies, who's also, you know, he's still works for the company. Um, he's one of our founders too, was kind of like, Hey, you know, don't you think it's a little messed up that we're going to make a brand around an endangered species? And we're like, dude, that's a really like, that's a good point. Like did not think about that was kind of just in the mode. And so I think we did what like normal college kids would have did. We literally Googled like how to save elephants. First thing that came up was save the elephants.org. We like put it in charity navigator, saw they had a great rating. We're like, all right, great. Let's just donate a percent of our profits to this because we don't want to take advantage, you know, of an endangered species or anything like that. We, you know, we'd rather, so we didn't start it to be like, Hey, we got to go save the elephants. It kind of just happened that way. And I mean, I'll tell you, I mean, I love elephants now, right? Like they made such a huge impact on my life, but, but I, you know, don't want to lie and sit here and say we had this great plan and, you know, conservation strategy beforehand. It, it, it kind of just happened. And, you know, to this day, I mean, I think we're all still thankful for Richard for making that point. You know, it's probably one of the reasons we've been as successful as we were. Yeah, I mean, the the likely crossover is someone who works in a charitable organization who is also able to do entrepreneurial based tasks and generate, you know, generate capital. It, that that cohort of people has to be really, really small. So, um, you know, let the entrepreneurs do the entrepreneurship stuff people who are uh, driven to do charitable cause do that and i think that kind of emergence and coming together is great and it's kind of refreshing i wasn't sure how you were going to do it were you going to do the yeah we came into this we want to save the elephants and build a business around that or we you know we wanted to build a business but we had a, a an impact uh part of our thinking which is great and and did you face any backlash did you face any you know throughout the throughout the journey of building it did anyone sort of say, oh, you're doing this for profit or you're doing, did you, did you face any of that? Oh, I, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, everybody, right. Cause when you hear the number, um, right. 10%, everybody's like, well, where's the other 90% going? Um, you know, and so we, we face a ton of it. I mean, that's where say the elephants was such a good partnership for us because they, I mean, to this day, their CEO, Frank still comes on, you know, our social media is our Instagram, like goes live with our community knowing like, Hey, like, we wish a lot more people did it like this um, because I think everybody's got this like glamorous idea of, you know, what a, you know, business makes and really makes, right? Like we had at one point, you know, 130 employees, you know, we're not dropping, we're not a drop ship store, right? We're not dropping 40 points to the bottom line. Um, you know, there are times where we're, even though we're doing millions of dollars, right? I'm driving like a 1991 Lexus with 400,000 miles on it, you know? Um, cause we're not making any money, taking any paychecks or anything from it, um, for it. And that's where, like I said, save the elephants was such a good partner for us. Cause they saw that they recognized that, Hey, we're putting all this money back into the business to grow it. We have employees that we have to pay, um, set overhead for just our warehouse, things like this, you know, Q4 comes now we got to build inventory, kind of all the, you know, the, the tough things about business, nobody really wants to talk about or see, they just want to, you know, post the Shopify screenshots, things like that, you know, <laughs> We weren't about that. We were trying to build something serious and something big that would be sustainable and, you know, be here for a long time. And so that's where they were so good about it. But I mean, yeah, we definitely faced a lot of backlash. We we knew we were. We weren't scared of it. I mean, we felt really good about where we were going. Um, like I said, at one point, it might have changed now. It was like Leonardo DiCaprio and then us for donations to Elephant Conservation. So we felt really good about it. We had a great partner um, 
inside the elephants who was more than happy to share that with other people. But I mean, yeah, the backlash was definitely there. I mean, we understood it was going to be there too. You made me think of like um, Phil Knight building up Nike when he said about when they first started, everyone on board was athletes. And then by the time it got to a, any significant size, most of the people there didn't even, you know, take part in sports. So yeah, you can have a, you can have a purpose, you can have a culture, you can have a brand, but ultimately the people that are there, they're there to do a job, just build yeah. a business. So, and, it, you know. and again, we were doing all of our own screen printing, all of our own fulfillment. So a lot of our job, right. I mean, there's a lot of employees. Like, again, I'm a, I'm a college kid at this point. You know, I don't know anything about machinery automation. You know, I've got people just folding shirts and, you know, we, went and bought a $60,000 folding machine, right? That paid for itself in three months, but we didn't know about that two, you know, two years in, like we were just kind of trying to wing it and figure this all out, you know, at once we never knew Ireal was going to blow up to where it, it got to. And so we were, you know, every day kind of just in a full sprint um, for probably three years. It felt like, you know, it was never going to end. It was just like every day, like wake up as early as you can and then work as late as possible. And then like rinse, repeat, if you sleep in on a Sunday, like your Monday is going to be hell, you know? So, um, you know, it was a lot, but we, we were trying to figure it all out. We lost, you know, not lost, but we spent a ton of money trying to figure it out. You know, um, I always love doing things like this and talking to other entrepreneurs, because I'm like, let, learn from my experiences. Let me tell you, you know, how I spent a hundred thousand dollars on, you know, printers from Walmart before I learned what a zebra printer was. Um, let me, you know, do all these crazy things that we did just, Cause we were just college kids trying to figure it out, you know? Um, and it was cool. It was fun. It was a really hard life lesson to learn financially, but you know, we, we, we got there and it, it was a good experience. Yeah. Serious acceleration out the gate, wasn't it? In terms of, you know, yeah. just catching the, catching the wave, you know? Yeah. I mean, we had, yeah, like I said, we had other e-com stores we were running at the time, you know, probably doing 30 to 60 grand a month. Like I had a couple of buddies in college, my roommates who were like, doing the fulfillment and social media and my mom and sister were doing the customer service. And so when we launched this, we kind of thought it was going to be similar to that. You know, we made a thousand t-shirts and we're like, we sell these in, you know, a month, amazing, a week, like unbelievable. You know, we sold out in about 17 minutes. And then, you know, I remember I was like a Friday night, again, still a senior in college. So I'm at like a house party, like had a decent amount of drinks and all my partners are calling me like freaking out. We're like, what do we do? What do we do? we decided to just put everything on like pre-sale and like, we'll just figure it out on Sunday. And I mean, every time you refresh your phone, we, we were another thousand dollars, another thousand dollars, another thousand dollars. We ended our first weekend from Friday at midnight to like Sunday midday, about $600,000 in sales. Um, we had oh none of the product. God. We had no idea what we were going to do. I'm still in school. You know, my one partner, Matt's a high school teacher. So he's calling me. Cause I'm doing all the fulfillment for our other businesses. So he was going to do this. He's like, dude, what do I do? We've sold thousands of shirts that we don't have. I got to go to work tomorrow. Here I am, this stupid college kid. Like, oh, Matt, you know, I'll just come up. Like, we'll get it figured out in a week, two weeks. Like, we'll be good from there. Moved, you know, from Philly up to Connecticut at his place then. And honestly, never moved back for probably eight years. That's it's insane. Insane. Yeah, how it was you, wild. <laughs> how generate that kind of demand straight away. So I will say we were um, prior to Ivory Ella and our other businesses. What me and all my partners did was we built Twitter accounts, and so um, you know we kind of stole the model from Facebook. We knew some people who had built Facebook pages and had been really successful. Um, the guys who built Seven Lead did the same thing. We kind of copied their model a little bit, where we built all these. Twitter pages and like these are like my one partner, his first page ever was called Lady Boners, right? So just like Justin Bieber without a shirt on, you know? Uh, and so we built all these parody pages. And once we built enough, you know, we use them to build other pages. And I think at our peak during Ariel, when we were doing it, like we had about 86 million followers across all of our different parody accounts between uh, me and our four other partners. So um, we kind of had a cheat code there. Um, I think with Ariel when we launched, we had about 26 to 28 million across our accounts. Um, but it was during the time where, I don't know if you remember, if you're on Twitter, there was like this phase where everybody was doing the starter pack, right? And it was like four images. 
And so what we would do was like all these different starter packs of like really well-known cool brands, Nike, Converse. And like we would sneak our Ireal in there without telling anybody who it was. And so we probably did that for about a month and a half, two months before our launch. We also created this Baby Elephants account, which grew to like 800,000 followers. And then on launch night, we quickly switched that Baby Elephants account to the Ireal official account. We then went back on all those posts, commented all like, shop Ireal, shop Ireal, shop Ireal. And again, we expected it to do well, but I mean, we expected to make like, like I said, that first 60 grand over the course of the first month, not, you know, the first 17 minutes. Um, and so it just took off. You know, I'd like to sit here and tell you how I'm this marketing genius for these gurus who like figured it out, how to hack. But a lot of it I was think, just... I think you are, based on the basis uh, of that, that it was pretty incredible. It was... It was Definitely some smart marketing beforehand. We had built this platform beforehand and like we put a lot of the right pieces in place, but we were also at the right time, right place, right? Like I said um, at the start of this, during this moment was when elephants were the biggest thing on social media. You know, um, like that all happened in probably a three month window. Um, and so we dropped it at really the right time to kind of just zip it into, you know, another stratosphere. So, a lot of hard work, definitely a little bit of planning, but a lot of luck that went into it. There's no two ways about it. I imported uh, a bulk import of products into Shopify, and I did not put in the meta fields the created date, and uh, that sent the whole filtering system haywire because you could no longer filter by collect collections by newest in first uh, or, or date added to the website, which was a really big problem for this quite large fashion brand. If I didn't have Rewind, that would have been a complete pickle. It would have taken hours, if not days, to sort out all of the while these products are live and really messing up their merchandising. A mistake by me, absolutely. But fortunately, I had the foresight to install Rewind before I made any of these changes. And I was able to just click a button, restore the site back to a previous version just a few minutes before I made that fatal error. And no one was any the wiser. That's the value of Rewind. That's just one use case, okay? One use case. There are hundreds of other use cases. Have it on there because when you need it, you'll text me or you'll tweet me and say, thank you so much, Finn, for recommending that I installed Rewind. You saved my bacon. Back to today's show. So you, great launch. And then how did you kind of continue to build attraction and try and build a loyal, dual-purpose um. kind of... <laughs> Loyal is an interesting word I would use to describe it. So the biggest thing, like I said, we had no idea what we were doing. And we're selling, I mean, thousands of shirts every day. And it kind of worked in our favor. So for, you know, our first, we launched in April. So through the first summer and pretty much the first year, it was about, you know, four to eight weeks before you would ever get an order if you ordered. Um and so, I mean, we would have people show up at the warehouse every day. You know, I, we would probably get one to 10,000 customer service emails a day. And like, again, we're figuring this out. We're hiring high school kids who are just responding like, no, no, like ignore this one. You know, it was like you had to answer 50 emails, you know, every 30 minutes or else like you're not going fast enough. Um, but so we built this like demand because nobody could get a hold of us if you bought a shirt. You know, it didn't arrive, but when it did arrive, you were the coolest person in your school and on social media because you got one. I remember our first Christmas, our Black Friday drop, you know, we did about a million dollars in 10 minutes on Black Friday before we ran out of product. And then a week later, those same sweatshirts were selling for about four to $600 on eBay. <laughs> so we'd have to like beg our employees, like, listen, please don't steal this stuff. Like, we know we have no idea what we're doing. Like, we love you guys. We'll treat you right. We'll pay whatever you want. Just like, please don't steal this stuff because like, but so, so I say that because like to this day, if you look at like the Better Business Bureau and you look up Ivoriella, you're going to see nothing but just horrendous reviews, um, you know, but it built almost this cult-like following because it was so hard to get an item, you know, the first two years really that it built this, you know, loyal following that people like when we dropped something, like they had to get it. And so, um, you know, again, we kind of fell into that because we just didn't know what we were doing. So we could never keep up to demand. So for our first two years, it just organically worked because 
we just, like I said, didn't really know what we were doing and we're kind of shooting from the hip learning. Um, but that scarcity model really like kind of took us to that next level. You know, I tell everybody like the hardest million is the hardest to make. And then like 10 million, like 30 million, 50 million are the next really big barriers. And, you know, what got us from that 10 to 30 million was that, that scarcity model of just like, all right, we put it up, like we're only going to put up a certain amount. And like, we're going to let it sell out for five minutes. We're not going to get greedy and like buy a bunch more. We're just going to move on to the next one and we'll re-release this product, you know, in six months from now. Um, and so we had to be disciplined to it because it was, you know, I think, like I said, we, we did our first Black Friday, we did about a million in 10 minutes and then we stopped. We said, all right, we're not going to do any more. So we, we realistically probably could have done about eight to 10 million that Black Friday. Um, but we decided not to. Um, again, looking back, would I've changed it? Not sure. Hard to tell, but I mean, it definitely pivoted us for a whole nother year. And then year two, you know, we made the jump from 14 million to about 23 million, then from 23 to 28 and 28 to about 32, 33. Let's dig into the products a bit. I mean, that's phenomenal timing, yeah. clearly, obviously incredibly savvy marketing. Sounds like you were on the pulse and executing those two components were there so what what about the early products what were you what were you releasing so we were just selling t-shirts this was also crazy so again we launched in april and we were selling comfort colors t-shirts um so they were super popular at all the frats sororities in college and so we knew early on that even though we were selling to a younger probably middle school to early high school girl we wanted to market to college kids because people, you know, they look up to the older, that college demographic market, especially the younger generation. So that's who we were marketing to. So that's all the products was around. So everything was on Comfort Color products. That summer, Gildan bought out Comfort Colors. And so all the warehouses on the East Coast were either shutting down, transitioning to Gildan. So it was a nightmare to get shirts. So we had a, a rep with Comfort Colors who we basically told them, look, we will buy all of these cash. We will come pick them up. And so every Friday, because again, college kid, no idea. I don't know anything about insurance. I, I can't send employees in a 24-foot U-Haul you know, to go pick up these shirts 10 hours away up in Maine or down in South Carolina. So me, two of my other partners, we usually like draw straws or just see like who could was willing to drive a 24-foot truck like every Friday. Three of us would usually go out, drive a big truck to a warehouse where there was only half the employees because the comfort colors half were all fired. The Gildan employees didn't know if they were going to be fired or hired, so they wouldn't help you. And you would load the truck by hand. Take you about five hours. We did that every Friday. Three of us would. And then you drive it back. We'd print all the shirts, you know, the next four or five days. And then we'd, we'd get it again and, you know, go back again. And whether it was Vermont, Maine, wherever there was a comfort colors warehouse that was now being taken over by Gildan, we would go. And it was, I mean, it was crazy because like we didn't know on a day-to-day basis if we were going to have shirts or not. But at one point we were the only people bought, allowed to buy comfort color shirts on the East coast because we paid a premium price. We paid all up front for them and we, we loaded and did all the freight ourselves. Yeah. I mean, you're a dream. <laughs> you're, you're essentially a liquidation firm at that point. Taking out yeah, all of the yeah. they loved us, dude. They loved us. Yeah, to this day, I was like, yeah, please just don't sell to anybody else. Like, oh, you have this in stock, like, we'll take it, we'll develop a product around it, it'll be fine. Like, we'll buy it all. So that I mean that that is such a wild decision. And I love it. I love everything about all of that. It's really the kind of fire that keeps me going for e-commerce because it's like people doing this crazy shit getting stuff to customers. But looking back now, you're a bit more mature in, in your yeah. entrepreneurship journey. Would you have made the same decision if they said, look, we're pulling the plug on these t-shirts? Um, no, I mean, I, like I said, we run a bunch of other shirts. I mean, I've manufactured my own products now for the last six years. So after Ivriella, I bought a, another business called Altagracia, which was a product manufacturing plant. We made t-shirts for all the colleges in the United States. And we were the only certified living wage factory. We had about 160 employees in the Dominican Republic and about 20 in Atlanta. And so I learned how to make my own t-shirts. Um, so like going back, I, I, I know how to source stuff. Like I would know so much easier now. Um, you know, we were, we, um, at the time shark tank was super popular. Right. And so, um, 
we worked with Damon John for a while, just like not on the show. We actually turned down the show, but we're in communication with him and his team. And so he sourced products for us um, after that first summer because we're like, guys, this is not sustainable. Like one, I am tired of going to pick up t-shirts every Friday. And like two, like we're ordering at such a large volume. Like let's figure out how to do this ourselves. So, you know, we did what we had to get by. And that's why I tell people like, I really do feel like we got lucky when we, we started IVL. We hit lightning in a bottle. But where I'm confident nine out of 10 people would fail was the execution um, because we were working seven days a week. You know, for the first seven years, I never did Thanksgiving with my family because Black Friday was so crazy. Um, and so we were working seven days a week, 22 hours a day. You know, I was living in the warehouse for our first five months. I had a bed in the warehouse and I just didn't leave. And every three days, somebody would be like, John, like, please take my keys, go to my house and shower. This is crazy. You know, <laughs> was doing about 11 cups of coffee with two extra espresso shots in each cup every day, just uh, a real unsustainable pace. And so um, that's where I think is truly so amazing. What I'm so grateful for the people I worked with, people I met who helped us along the way, like, that's where it was amazing just to see people like, I mean, go in 20, 22 hours a day to make this thing happen for orders that were sold four weeks ago, that's where I think most people would have folded and, and we where we just kind of grinded and got through. Take us back to one of those days in the warehouse, one of those long stretches early on. What what would a typical, I want to call it a day, but it's not really a working day, is it? It's more like a marathon. What would a typical day for you have looked like then? Yeah, so typically um, my one partner's dad, Steve was his name. I tell people to say he's the only guy that spent more time than me in the warehouse. The guy was a maniac. I'm so grateful for him and everything he did with us. But he'd bang on the door probably like around 5 a.m. Um, where my bed was to wake me up and to let himself in the warehouse. He'd normally have four cups of coffee there, two for him, two for me. We'd get going. We'd turn on the print machines. We'd you know get the lights going and um, employees oh would God. start coming yeah, in. Prop, you're manufacturing prop. yourselves, right? You're actually printing. Yeah, we're printing all of our own yeah. t-shirts. So just a sidebar, crazy story. We didn't know anything about screen printing either. We were just like, screw it, we'll figure it out. <laughs> and so we were, our first printer was literally manual. If you know anything about screen printing, like, you know, hand pressing these shirts. And we're like, this, after day one, we're like, this isn't going to work. You know, a guy could print 300 shirts a day if he's busting ass. Um, and so we bought an automatic print machine. Again, just being kids and idiots. This machine arrives on this huge truck. We don't have a warehouse with a loading dock. We moved six times in our first two years because we kept growing. So at this time, our current warehouse didn't have a loading dock. We didn't have a forklift. So my um, partners go, we, we were on this bridge. The bridge was on a main highway. They go over the bridge to this other warehouse store. And we basically beg and bribe these guys to let us buy or to use their forklift. They take the forklift over the highway. So imagine two 20-year-old kids on a forklift on a highway that's 70 miles an hour, just cruising along. We get there. Six hours later, we get this stupid thing off the truck, get it in our building, only to realize our building wasn't fit for the right power to even run the machine. Oh. So week goes by, thousands of dollars to renovate the whole place. We finally get the machine moving just for us to move a month later. Um, But yeah, we screen printed everything ourselves. So uh, typical day, we get in, like I said, 5 a.m. Steve would wake me up. We'd get everything set up. You know, we had so many orders that it was a, it was just a numbers game. Like, okay, who's over 100 days old? Prioritize those people. And then after that, only single orders. Because, like, we don't... 100 days old. 100 yeah, so we had, days old. Wow. We had about 1,000 orders at one point that were over 100 days old. We had contacted all the customers. None of them wanted a refund. Um, they just what wanted the their shirts. Yeah, it was crazy. Man. It was crazy. So we would prioritize the oldest ones we could as long as they were over 100 days old. The second he got to 99, that is tomorrow's problem. And then single orders. So it would come off the press and that shirt had already been sold. And then we just had an assembly line. Somebody would sit there, fold it, roll it. Somebody would sit there, put it in a bag and somebody would print out the shipping label and go. Same time, we'd have people on customer service. Like I said, and every time if you messed up, because again, we're working with high school kids because my te- my partner was a high school teacher at the time. So like, again, didn't know temp agencies, like any of this stuff. I had no idea. And so we just, if you messed up five shirts in an hour, screen printing, you had to move to fulfillment because you were causing us more money than we were making. If fulfillment, you couldn't do like 70 single orders an hour, you had to go to customer service. 
And then customer service, if you couldn't do like, again, like 50 emails every 30 minutes, you know, we had to move you to some type of prep work or something. I mean, we weren't firing anybody because like we needed all the help we could get. Um, you know, we, one day we had a friends and family day. Bring, I probably shouldn't be saying this, but we had bring your friends and family. And we had probably like 200 of our employees' family across our entire parking lot with folding tables, folding shirts. And we're just paying everybody 20 bucks an hour cash. Like, you know, like, and so also at the time, you know, I'm sure every, you know, especially in e runs their issues with PayPal, but we had about like 600 grand locked in PayPal because we had made so much so fast. They immediately assumed it was fraud. So not only make this money, but we can't spend it. So I am begging my parents for like five grand every week, just like pay people. So my parents think I've now put us in like, crippling like generational debt over this elephant scam they don't understand social media the internet i keep showing them this but they're like why is it not in your bank account right like but i'm thankful for them you know they gave us a ton of money to help get going that we were able to pay them all back which is great but i mean yeah it was madness it was there's no two ways to describe it it was pure chaos every single day like we call them the dark days it was about eight months, just like they're kind of a blur now, but it was, I mean, it was just, it was madness. So that's like the, the kind of Hollywood screenplay version of e-commerce that just played out in real time. It was a real, ah, oh, just, it was a pleasure to listen to it really. I mean, I'm glad I wasn't oh. really in the nicest way, <laughs> yeah. um, but you know, wow, what the hell just the, the stress and the anxiety must've been through the roof, but also Looking back on it, do you, do you, do you see it through rose tinted glasses now? Do you just sort of look back on it and go, yeah, it was tough, but wow, what an experience. Or are you kind of like, nah, I, I actually, it, it could have been a lot easier. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I go back and forth on it, right? Like I love that we would be able to do it. I mean, it's changed me in a good and bad way for the better, right? Like, I mean, I don't really sleep anymore, right? I'm, I'm a get four hours and I'm kind of good because I feel like my body has just been destroyed from those times, all the coffee, caffeine, just lack of sleep. I just don't do it anymore, which is great. And, uh, again, I don't, hindsight's twenty twenty. There are so many ways we could have worked smarter. Um, you know, just getting in, we got in a ton of consultants a year later, a COO, a CFO who were like, you know, at the, real adults, right? Like people who were, um, late in their careers, who had done business before, who, I mean, the amount of things they did for our business, over their time was so much greater than what we did, but we didn't know any better. And so, you know, um, I, I do look back with rose glasses. I, I love every second of it. I know during the time I didn't love every second of it. Right. I mean, we also had, you know, five partners, right. And so five people all making equal decisions while, you know, everything is blowing up. I mean, uh, there probably wasn't one day where we weren't screaming, you know, F you at each other. Right. But it was all, I mean, it was all for the business. I mean, there were times where, you know, you had to take a mental health day because it was like, okay, we're never going to solve this problem today. Like I got to step away or else, you know, I'm going to go crazy. I, I mean, one day it kind of changed us for the better. Um, I, I ended up falling asleep at the wheel. I was going home for an ex-girlfriend's like graduation. I was finally going to step away for two days. Thought I was good, you know, because when you go so much without sleep, your body starts to run on the adrenaline. You don't really feel tired, even though you are. So I fell asleep at the wheel going about 80 miles an hour um, and hit somebody else and totaled both cars, but walked away. Me and the other person, totally fine. Um, absolute miracle. And that was kind of a huge wake up call for me. Um, Cause I was probably a big part of the problem. Cause I was just like, we got to go, 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 go. Can't stop. Um, and so that was the first time for me that I stepped back and was like, whoa, like we got to do something different or like, this is not going to be sustainable. Like, yeah, we've done really well for the first six months, but like not going to make it to year six if we keep up this pace. And so uh, I'm again, super proud of us. I, I love the experience of it. It is, again, it sounds nice, right? Like talking to you about it, just thinking about it. You know, I forget about all the days of just like, breaking down in a parking lot, like crying, like wondering, like, is this all worth it? Like, you know, I forget about those times now and just remember the good, the funny stories. But um, I, I am thankful for it. Like I said, I think it, we learned in a very fast way, you know, how to run a business, how to manage people, um, how to do a lot of the stuff that you don't always hear about with e-commerce, but like, if you want to make it at a big level, like it happens with any business. So you know, your first employee like goes to the hospital and now you've got workers, you know, 
like that was like a crazy experience, you know, like somebody cut their finger with a box cutter, like, oh shit, this is like a much bigger deal than like, I didn't realize it was like, um, you know, getting those things, like we learned, I mean, we learned fast. I mean, we learned expensively too, but, um, I learned at a young age and it opened so many doors too, right? I mean, everybody wanted to be a part of it, the different brands, the different companies. I mean, um, so it opened a ton of doors for me that I'm always thankful for. You are in the D2C space. If you have a brand that's selling online and you haven't at least had a demo with Sendlane, then one of two things is objectively true about you. You like setting money on fire. You like making your life more difficult. If neither of those things are true and you are an e-commerce brand and you are selling online, you do send emails, you do send SMS, you do have reviews or at least like to collect reviews, then there is no reason for you not to at least have had a demonstration with Sendlane. They are built for e-commerce. They are the most modern platform with the best features, in my opinion, at the lowest cost. I mean, I'm not really sure what would be holding you back. Please go and check them out. Show notes below. They have an event coming up. You can still get tickets, I believe, for that event in San Diego. A link to the Commerce Roundtable in the show notes below as well. Please do go and check out Sendlane if you haven't already. Back to the episode. So looking back, I mean, there must have been jumping off points as the company grew. Was there ever a point where you thought I can relax a little bit here? Um, I mean, probably not, but that's just not my personality. I think my partners would tell you that that was maybe a detriment to myself. So I was the CEO for about four and a half years. Um, and again, I I loved it, right? I, I loved the fact that we were so innovative. We were always doing something new at all times. We were going to push ourselves to the limits. So I... I mean, I was also 20, like four at the time. So we definitely like work hard, play hard. There's no two ways about it. Being so close to New, to New York and Boston, like being in our early 20s, like we, we definitely like relax in a sense. I mean, it's not, you know, as I'm in my 30s now, I wouldn't call it relaxing anymore. But at the time we thought it was. Um, but no, I mean, we just always wanted to go. And that was what was so awesome about the culture we had, the partners I had, everybody like all times was like, all right, if we're not growing, we're dying. What are we doing next? How do we get into this, you know, angle? How do we do these kind of apparels? You know, how do we keep reinventing ourselves? So like we continually tried to push as much as we could. You know, once we got the warehouse side figured out, it was like, all right, now we need to go on the marketing because this Twitter thing ain't going to last forever. You know, how do we get new into this TikTok thing that's coming up? Um, and so I'd say our focus has shifted a little bit. You know, the operations were such a long grueling part of it. But once that changed, then it was like, okay, now we're not relevant on Twitter anymore. So we've got to pivot. Now, like, you know, the girl we were selling to, she's in college. So she's not buying her stuff anymore. How do we reinvent ourselves, you know, at this level? Or do we just follow this girl through her life? Like, what are those brand decisions we need to make? And so I'd say we always continually push. That was just my personality, the personality, of a lot of the people and the culture we had, um, for better or worse. But we didn't, now we didn't really relax. I mean, work was fun. You know, when you're building something you love with, you know, people you love, like a lot of my good buddies worked for me for, you know, four years because again, just going crazy. I know our people begging, you know, friends to come up for summers in college. Um, you know, my younger brother was the first person who did all of our finances. He was a year younger than me. And one weekend he came up with like seven of his buddies who were like, finance and econ majors in college and they like did our books you know things like that so we loved what we were doing so but we never relaxed now we were kind of always go 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 100 percent. was there ever i mean when you when you first started you hit that wave when did you realize that it might be a wave did you ever realize it might be a wave and then how did you deal with that mentally in terms of yeah we've smashed this and now we're going like now we have this momentum. What if it all disappears tomorrow? Did you try and build in? Did you, did you ever think that it was just like, oh, Matt, because you've got this drop culture thing going on that presumably isn't sustainable forever. And then you've also got this uh, kind of timing with all these Twitter accounts all converging in one moment, creating this huge impact. Like, what did you do? And, and, and did you know, were you self-aware enough to know that that probably wasn't going to last forever? We weren't. We certainly weren't. We absolutely thought it was going to last forever. Um, there's no two ways about it, right? We were so in it. We we're like, this is great. This would, this will never end. I mean, that was at one point, I'm confident what we all thought is that this is going to last forever. Um, 
And so we, we didn't think that way for better and worse. I mean, it allowed us to keep doing what we were doing without having to, you know, be over dramatic about it or try and pivot too aggressively. Um, but also worse because, I mean, it did eventually come, right? We did hit a revenue peak where we stopped growing and we didn't know what to do because everything we had done today had worked. And so, you know, our first kind of adversity was, was tough for us as a business. Um, we got lucky. And after our first like kind of eight months, when the t-shirts were going crazy, we tried to launch our first other product, which was this water bottle. And my partner, um, Esma at the time had been this, she was already like a social media influencer slash like kind of star. And she took our water bottle and like, she just put fruit in it with like water and made this like video. And it just went viral. It was crazy. And now all of a sudden we're selling as many water bottles as we are t-shirts all because she just put like fruit in the water and like, it made this really cool picture on Instagram and it just went bananas, you know? So we kind of got lucky where we hit, I mean, we were still riding the t-shirts pretty hard, but now all of a sudden we're t-shirts and water bottles and we can't, you know, we're selling out of both of them. And so we got really lucky with our first couple product expansions um, with just some creative marketing that we didn't really plan to do just really worked out. Um, and so, like I said, a, a lot of our journey was just kind of dumb luck and having the sheer willpower to execute on it. Um, but then, like I said, when we first hit our first, you know, ever month, not growing, you know, month over month, that was the first like, oh shit, like, um, we need to go back and look at this. Or the first time we really did our books and realized that like, huh, this Google agency has overcharged us by a million dollars. Like, whoa, like we were so focused on going that we never stopped to really game plan. And because of that, once the luck ran out, like it hit us hard and it hit us quick. And we had to, you know, kind of pivot and, you know, really work through some of those tough times. Yeah. 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 Cause that, there's, there's like you have said you hit lightning in a bottle. That's amazing. And you capitalized on that, but it doesn't give you that slow growth. It doesn't give you that perpetual, okay, who's the consumer? First thousand customers, build, build, build. Give you all that data, which can. Yeah. And you got, like I said, at this point, we're screwing over every customer. You know, we're not answering customer service. They're not getting their shirts for a while. So it was a real short term game for a while. And so it was a, you know, it was a challenge to get those customers back and get that repeat customer rate, you know, to where we needed it to be, to be a healthy growing business. You know, those were things we struggled with because. Um, those that got a shirt while they were super excited, they weren't super ready to wait another, you know, two months to get another item. And so, especially with no communication, you know, so, um, we never thought about the customer journey. Um, and that certainly hurt us, like I said, I think in the long run and stunned us from where we could have been, you know, I think at one point we, we thought we could have hit a hundred million in revenue, um, in a year. And there was a potential opportunity there. I always believe that the market size for just that kind of product is so slim that you got to be really special to get to that number. Um, but we certainly had a chance if we could go back and do all the things we know now, right? I mean, email flows like Facebook ads, none of this we were doing, you know, so um, we didn't capitalize as much as we could have on the wave. But um, again, at that point, it was just every, all hands forward to get it done. How, mu how much of a impact do you think having a purpose-driven brand had in terms of if you could put a percentage on it versus doing this without any kind of um, social good or purpose behind it? So I originally, I mean, it was huge. Originally, it was probably, I mean, it was probably a good 30 to 40% of our sales were because of that. I tell a lot of people because after our first year being so successful, we saw a ton of copycats out there. And I think at first, it, it upset us, but then at the end of the day, you know, we were kind of like, we just got to focus on us. Um, you know, it was more, we were still so young. It was more of an immature mindset. I look back now and I'm like, why did I even give a shit about that stuff? Um, but what I tell people now is where we really shifted about a year into is we saw is it wasn't a huge reason for purchasing. Um, but what we did see, it was a huge reason why abandoned carts, you know, were so low and why people finished their purchase. And we still to this day charge for shipping. Um, and a lot of that is the give back component. And so we found that our conversion rate was greatly impacted by the give back because once people got to the checkout, we had all the things about our donation, where the money was going and our abandoned car rate numbers were fantastic. Um, our conversion rate was fantastic. And so I really think 
while at start, it was a huge jumper for us very early on, like not even a year later. Um, I think that switched to where it wasn't the lead driver by any means of why somebody was purchasing, but it was a reason why they were going to finish their purchase. And that was, I mean, that's super important as well. Yeah. gives you that credibility, doesn't it? If a customer's yep. asking, why should I buy this product at the checkout? That's a really good reason to finish. It answers it for them again, especially when they get up there and they're like, Oh, 749 for shipping. Um, but it's like, oh, you know, the elephants are here. You've made it this far. Um, and so that's where, like I said, it, it, that's where it had a huge impact on our business, um, going forward. And then, and then do you, do you, do you think you outgrew it as in the, the, t- the time for the actual brand became bigger than the time for people that are invested in saving elephants? Yeah. But again, I think that happened pretty quickly. I do think there was, like I said, with that scarcity factor, there was this kind of like coolness slash gotta have an Ivoriella, you know, that was way more important to people than elephants. I mean, that happened super quick. So I do think it was shifted while there was good intent. Um, I, I do think, like I said, very early on, people more or less wanted the product. Um, and then the donation was great, but it wasn't something that was driving that purchase by any means. Yeah. I think that's a trend that continues today, doesn't it? With sustainability and things like that. A lot of people would raise their hand to say they, it's important, but it really doesn't statistically have any relevance on the purchase or very. Yeah. I mean, like, it's, like I said, I, after every, I owned another business that was the only certified living wage factory in the world. So we paid all of our people, you know, two and a half times minimum wage, all these amazing benefits. And it really didn't matter to consumers at all, which was crazy. Um, you know, cause I come from this business that was impacting animals and elephants, making such a difference. And here's a real human impact. You know, you can see the person who made your t-shirt that you're wearing. And again, if you went to any college in the United States, our t-shirts were sold in your bookstore. And, um, you think a college student, that would be the best place to sell it. And it just didn't matter at all. Had no impact whatsoever on any studies we did. Um, on any research we did with our consumers, it just did not drive their purchasing whatsoever. So. Yeah. I don't know if I can wrap my head around that one yet. I have to look at my own habits and think about why or why I don't purchase those things, but deep human psychology there. I'm sure there's some research papers somewhere knocking around, but yeah, Yeah. I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions, isn't it? In e-commerce where people assume that people will opt for the more ethical option but doesn't seem to yeah. be the way. But then you see all these fast fashion brands just absolutely crushing, growing significantly quickly. You've got economic downturns and things like that. And you start to realize that people have a lot of problems and taking on that kind of a problem as well. Just not going to be something they're going to do. It, yeah, no, it's not. And like I said, a lot of people come to me now and they ask me like, well, you gave back, which is successful. Should I give back? And I'm like, I mean, does it work for your business model? Right? Like, cause you know, how are you driving traffic? What are you looking to convert them at? Can you use that as a tool? But it's it's really not going to help you drive as much traffic as you think. You know, you're not going to get the press and love that you think you're going to get behind it. Um, and again, there are obviously exceptions, but I just don't see it. You know, what I love about e-commerce, right? And it's so black and white. How much traffic do you bring? What percentage of them buy? How much do they spend when they buy, right? On those three pillars, you can pretty much understand where a business is going well and where it's going wrong. Um, and I always tell people it's not going to help with that first pillar. It's not going to bring people to your store. It can help with, you know, how much they purchase and, you know, how many of them are purchasing, but it's rarely now I find where it helps bring that initial traffic in or, or be a, a good pull to bring them in. What do you think does pull people in nowadays? Oh, it's tough. Um, I mean, again, the influencer stuff goes all over the place whenever there's a new platform, right? TikTok, everybody's crazy about it, but I feel like we're kind of going backwards now where there's so much, you know, there's this craze on UGC content, which is still great, but now everybody kind of knows it's an ad. And so it's going a little bit away from there. Um, I don't think there's a set answer for it. I think the people that do it best are the people that look at it just like scientists, like our crazy math people who are like, all right, we're going to spend a hundred bucks on this, 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 and here's the variable we're going to change. And then this is what, so I think, you know, the best marketing econ people I find 
while they have a good creative team, they're so weird and obsessed with their numbers and the little things they change. Um, you know, I know one guy who runs it, one of the best agency, we use him for everything. And he's just methodical about it. I mean, he changes a couple words on the ad and we're going to spend it here and here and run them against each other. And it'll be a little inefficient, but once we get this, we can run it for all of our other ads. And so I don't think there's a set playbook anymore. I think anybody that tells you if it, this way, it always works, I think is kind of just scamming you. But I think the people that are so maniac about it, like take it so scientific are the people that have the best chance to be successful because there are so many different things out there that are working. Um, you know, we're seeing this kind of drawback to Facebook where it's just like just product images with white background are performing better than our, you know, high influencer celebrity posts. Like what? That would never have been the thing, you know, three years ago. Um, and so I think it's always changing as consumers get, you know, more used to what the specific ads are, you know, all right, this person is an influencer, so they're not really buying this shit. Um, I think it's always an evolving landscape. And so the people that are, are willing to say, great, like I'm looking at this, this, and this, and always willing to pivot are the people that are most successful. Nice. What's, what, uh, now you're obviously out of Ivory Ella now or sold at least. I don't know if you have any, um, ongoing, uh, uh, obligations to the brand, but what do you do now? Primarily what takes up most of your time and where are you focused? Yeah, absolutely. So I run, um, it's interesting. At one point we called it an econ aggregator because we were, you know, when the pandemic happened, um, and I watched a lot of just buddies, friends, other people I know take out a bunch of money from Shopify, you know, Shopify Capital, Clearco, like take out these crazy loans with these huge interest rates. I'm sitting here like, no, do the math on them. They're not like 7%. It's really like 15%, which is your entire bottom line. So I watched a lot of people in e-com stores get killed over the pandemic. And so we started Calibrate um, as originally to buy e-commerce businesses um, and run our own e-commerce businesses. And that quickly pivoted to we opened up our own screen printing. So we now have a 150,000 square foot warehouse where we have six fully automatic screen printings. We do 3PL for not only our five brands, but also probably 25, 26 other brands. Um, and so what do I do? Like I said, it's kind of like, like we still buy businesses. Again, we have five of our own businesses. Um, you know, one of them called Soul Runner, like we're partnered with Tyree Kill, the receiver for the Miami Dolphins. So like he's the CEO of the business, but we do all the logistics, all the marketing product development. So, um, more stuff like that, I think on the back end side of it. Um, again, we still have a couple of our own brands we do, but we also got, again, a screen printing division, a 3PL division, um, a packaging division. So w w more in the logistics, I would say, um, which is certainly taking up a lot of my time. I was going to say, it sounds like you thrive in chaos, my man. You came uh, from chaos I, and you've created chaos and you yeah, still well, are. I, I, I love to build, right? And so, like I said, I saw all these people taking out all this capital that they were never going to be able to pay back. So I saw an opportunity in the market. Um, I've always believed that looking at Ivriella, our biggest costs and inefficiencies were the operations because we had all the space we didn't utilize. So I know as a brand, right, and that's us doing tens of millions of dollars, right? But if you're a brand doing a couple million dollars, well, like it's going to be really hard for you to justify a warehouse, these set employees, things like that. But these are all things that I have. And so we're like, okay, if we can bring down those operational efficiencies by you know, five to 15%. There's marketing audiences now that we can leverage against each other. Like there are those other business things, but straight up on the bottom line, we can add, you know, six, 7% by just getting shit cheaper, labels, poly bags. So we saw an opportunity to take businesses that were struggling, needed the capital. We could bring it in, you know, clear that debt, and then also make sure we get the bottom line up a little bit higher because we have those efficiencies. And then we said, screw it. We've got all this space. Like, even if somebody doesn't want to sell their business, why turn them away? We could still help them. So we offered and turned up the screen printing and fulfillment side of the business as well. Sounds like a great offering. It's almost like e-commerce rehab. I quite like it as a concept. Yeah. I mean, like you said, it's been fun. It's been cool. We've gotten to work with so many different businesses. And I mean, that's what I love. That's what our team here loves. You know, um, I still have a lot of the same team from Ivriella who they've come and now they work for me here. Um, it's, um, 
it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of problem solving, which is great. But like I tell people, I'm like, I made all these mistakes. There's no reason for you to make them too. Like, let's just look at this and this. We, I, you want influencers? I've got a list of 3,000 influencers who, you know, I talk to all the time, who I paid a ton of money, who are happy to do stuff for me. You need custom packaging or custom sourcing. Well, nobody's going to custom source, you know, 300 of a product, but I'm buying, you know, 30,000 for this other brand. Let me see if they'll do this for you kind of things like that. And so I think there's a lot of win-wins. We try and tell the people that come on with us, you know, we'd like to save you more money than you're going to spend with us. I mean, I've run businesses. Uh, I've done all myself. I realize how high those costs are going to go. And if it's too high, you're just going to do it yourself. So we try and offer, you know, this, the right services to the right businesses where it's going to be a win-win for everybody. Because I, I know if I could account. go back then and I had a smarter person than me, who's was like, hey, I'll ship all your packages for you. Like, I would have given them anything in the world to do, right? So, <laughs> yeah, 100%. And you're probably the best person placed to do all of those things. And it's real credit to you that your employees follow you over and just having this hour or so conversation, I can feel your energy. It's very optimistic. It's very, um, you know, you just, you just, you, you're a person people can get behind, I think. And, um, it's been a real pleasure getting to hear your story, which is one that I, I actually didn't expect, but it is just so fulfilling for me just to hear stuff like this because it, and the audience, cause it's just, I, it's a down and dirty, true e-commerce story. Um, and, someone who's clearly passionate about it so yeah massive massive thank you to you for sharing that and um yeah i i couldn't have hoped for more in this episode really it's, it's sort of uh it's early in the morning here i know it's late for you just as a caveat to this we arranged this at 5 20 a.m this morning um for john in uh, or somewhere around then and he's on the same day i've slept in between well, my first <laughs> i messaged me and said do you want to come on the show and he said yeah man let's do it and he gave me a time and it was actually later that day it's like seven eight o'clock for him now i went to bed get yeah. up and then did the show and it's still the same day for you so man you're i mean well i appreciate it. we got about four more hours of work here so my day's not over yet but it will be soon so jeez man all right let's fire yeah. it up with the lightning round just to finish just one word one sentence yeah. answered if that's okay just ask everyone at the end um one piece of uh advice life advice for an entrepreneur learn excel <laughs> your go-to book uh if you read or audio um you know something that really resonated with you uh, probably Shoe Dog, but I feel that I think you referenced it earlier too. Damn good book. Um, dinner with one person can be someone who has passed away in history, someone who is famous. Who would it be? Probably LeBron. Nice. Last thing you purchased online? Oh, shit. Um, that's a great question. I mean... Groceries? Do they count? I only wear brands that are. I only wear brands that are mine. So there, there you go. So I don't really buy <laughs> shit online because I ain't gonna buy my own stuff. So um, <laughs> I, I tend to always rep stuff that it's either mine or my clients. So uh, that I, I leave the online shopping to my wife. Fair play, CEO for a day. Which brand are you taking over? That's a good question. I've never been asked that before. I, it's lightning too, so I'd have to go quick. Uh, probably just Nike because it would be an amazing experience. They don't need Finally, me at all. Yeah. <laughs> Finally, one thing that you do every single day that just puts a little smile on your face. First cup of coffee. <laughs> you haven't changed at all, man. You're still the same guy. I, I mean, like I said, I love it. I feel like I'm the most fortunate person in the world to be able to be able to build something that's mine, do what I love. So, I mean, I, I don't take any day for granted. I, I love being here. Um, it's, I, like I said, I don't even like to go on vacation because I know I'm away. I mean, this is what I love to do. So yeah, I definitely, uh, I definitely am the same. I hope I never change. I think my wife hopes eventually I change, um, just a little bit at least, um, spend a little bit more time at home, but it's, it's, it's hard not to, to be grateful. And so I, uh, I take every day with a grain of salt and, you know, I'm thankful for every day to be able to do what I love. Oh, you're inspiring. Where, where can people find you if they want to get at you or message you? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, on Twitter, I'm at postage, um, or just my email, 
um, is just John, J-O-H-N at calibratenetwork.com. Um, you could text me my number. I can give you my number is 610-955-4534. I love hearing from entrepreneurs. Um, I love talking about this shit, right? Because I don't have all the answers. I can only share my experiences. And I, like I said, I had super costly experiences um, on all different types of business, businesses, um, especially the e-commerce space. So I hope people reach out. Again, I love just connecting with people. I learn um, from you, from others every single day. And so I'm, I'm still a sponge trying to make, you know, learn as much as I can, but, um, I love living this shit and I love talking about it. So. All right. That was John from Ecom Gold. What a hustle, what a grinder and genuinely a breath of fresh air. So much energy for seven or 8 PM in the evening as it was for him there. Go and follow him. I'm sure he'd be happy to give advice should you need it. Uh, one of those guys who's just operating in the shadows, but an operator he is. Thanks again for tuning into Ecom Gold. We will be back next week, as always, with another story from an e-commerce founder and or operator. If you see us on social media, please like and share. This show is brought to you by Rewind and Send Lane. Have a good week.